This episode is sponsored by EY. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. Well, the naysayers were kind of proven right. UST, the algorithmic stablecoin created by Terraform Labs, was de-pegged this week. Based on an elaborate algorithm that involves automatic supply adjustments and Terra's floating value Luna token as a kind of safety value, UST is designed to retain a stable value versus its benchmark. In this case, as with many stablecoins, that benchmark is the US dollar. But this week, amid a massive sell-off in crypto and in financial markets generally, UST's price dropped from the designed stable one-to-one dollar value to a 61 cents. To borrow a term from the money market world, UST broke the buck. And in doing so, it opened up a host of other issues for the wider crypto ecosystem. One of the main problems is that UST's woes seems to contribute to an acceleration in the sell-off of Bitcoin, which briefly dropped below $30,000 on Monday evening. That's because of a step taken earlier this year by the Luna Foundation to accumulate a Bitcoin reserve as an additional backup to its efforts to protect UST's value and the integrity of the Luna ecosystem. That's because to protect UST's value, the foundation now had to sell Bitcoin. What this speaks to is a classic problem that weighs heavily on financial professionals and regulators, the idea of systemic risk. That's a concept that was famously present during the 2008 financial crisis, where stress in one market had domino effects on other markets. It's something that some have warned about for some time with regards to algorithmic stablecoins. UST has recovered somewhat based on buying interventions by the Luna Foundation and other players who saw a need to protect its value. But concerns continue to linger around its integrity and the risk it poses to the wider ecosystem. Now, there's an alternative to Algo stablecoins, and those are reserve-backed tokens. But these too have their risks, people say, because reserve-backed stablecoins are managed by centralized entities, which advocates of decentralized systems will say can make them vulnerable to manipulation. Now, we can at least expect one of our guests today to push back on that critique of reserve-backed stablecoins. Jeremy Allaire, CEO of Circle, the lead manager of USDC, a prominent stablecoin that's backed by dollar-based liquid assets, is with us. And I'm looking forward to talking to him about the pros and cons of each model in the midst of this tense situation. Our other guest is Coindesk's Sam Kessler, who has been covering the ups and downs of UST for us. If you're at all confused about what's going on with this complicated algo coin thing, Sam's your man. Unfortunately, my co-host Sheila Warren can't be with us today, so we'll dive straight into a conversation with Jeremy and Sam. Welcome, gentlemen. Hi. Great to be here. It's great to have you as always, guys. Great to be here. So, Sam, I'm going to throw to you first just because I think this is such a complicated story. And if you can be as brief as possible, because I know Jeremy's tight on time, let's just give a layman's explanation of really how the UST peg system was supposed to work and maybe what went wrong this time. Yeah, thanks, Michael. I think you actually gave a pretty good summary already on what Terra is and why it exists. And I will try to give a layman's summary. It is complicated, so this is very high level. But essentially, like you mentioned, Michael, Terra is a decentralized answer to tokens like USDC and Tether. 
which are collateralized in some treasury by dollars, by fiat, or by treasury bills, stable things like that. So what happened with Terra is basically it fell off of its $1 peg down to as low as 61 cents yesterday. So the way Terra is supposed to work is it has this sort of shock absorber in a token called Luna, its sort of sister token. What Luna does is it's always able to trade for a dollar of UST. That kind of stopped working yesterday. There's a lot of reasons why that happened. But something important to note here is that, Michael, you mentioned systemic risk. A lot of people saw this coming, or at least say that they saw this coming. And part of that is because 75% of all UST was locked in one place before this weekend, 75%. And that's because they offered a, if you ask a lot of people, inflated yield of 20% over the year to users who locked up their tokens with this platform, with Anchor. So once UST started draining from Anchor, once people started pulling out their tokens, it dropped from like 14 billion of Terra's 18 billion supply down to, I think, like five, six or seven billion today. Once that started happening, it was a signal that people were losing faith in this stable token, suggesting that maybe it was like more the meme than the actual mechanism behind Terra that was keeping it floating, that was keeping it at a dollar. So today, now it's back up to like 92 or 93 cents every minute. Um, when you check, it seems to be at a different number. But the founder of Terra, Do Kwan, who's usually pretty outspoken, has been pretty quiet leading into today, except he just tweeted something recently saying that a rescue plan or something to that effect is coming. And that's probably going to involve the deployment of Terra's Bitcoin reserves, over $1.5 billion of which have been used by market makers, by professionals to try to defend the peg. Now, the last thing I'll say here is that defense mechanism that I talked about, kind of according to critics, I'm sure we might hear today, undermines these claims that Terra is an actually decentralized token. They say they're trying to progressively decentralize. I guess that's a bit of a hedge. But when this centralized $1.5 billion reserve is being deployed by professional market makers to defend the peg of a decentralized token, a lot of questions inevitably come up around whether the actual underlying algorithm, the mechanism, is really sufficient to keep a token at the price of a dollar. Excellent, excellent summary. Now, I do not want this to be an algo or terror bashing exercise here. But Jeremy, I think you're probably going to take a side that sort of speaks to some of those concerns people had about it, obviously. But can you explain to us, Circle's been in operation for some time, and you would, well before you even had a stable coin to work with. But when you decided that it was important to, to build a stable coin, why did you go for this model, the reserve model? What is it about this, the collateralized model that you think is important as an alternative to this algo model? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I, I think maybe just at a, from a high-level perspective, the way that we frame the problem space is a little bit different. I think when we founded the company, it was really on this concept that one could take what we think of as traditional money, like liabilities of a central bank, and express that in a cryptographic money form and enable open protocols uh, on the public internet to allow you to store and transmit and transact that value. We're really excited about the idea of kind of taking the money that's tied up in databases of treasury bills or databases of, of cash in a central bank system and then unlocking it with the sort of superpowers of the internet that you get through cryptocurrency and public internet protocols. And so just from an overall philosophy perspective, we never chose the word stablecoin, that chose us. We really have always thought about this as ways to take fiat and create digital currency versions of it that can function at scale on the internet 
with an eye towards the promise of programmable money. So when we founded Circle nine years ago, you know, smart contracts were sort of ideas on napkins, but it was very clear that if you could have a protocol layer that could allow you to represent dollars, euros, pounds, other currencies, and then you could essentially have the storage and transmission of those basically become a free service on the internet, and you introduce programmability on this public infrastructure, that would allow you to really build and imagine a lot of really powerful new ways to structure financial services, commerce, trade, other things. So the vantage point was not how to build a stable coin. The vantage point was how do we take legacy money systems and create public blockchain-based alternatives to that? And so the other piece to it, which is really related, is we've always been interested in a hybrid model. I think over the very long term, synthetic stablecoins are a really important concept. And, and I think even in some of our first conversations, Michael, we talked about synthetic stablecoins uh, that look more like an SDR. And I still am very long on those ideas. But I think as a starting point, we felt like if you could have a hybrid model where you could have seamless interoperability with the existing financial system, so you could enable the ability to kind of create and redeem seamlessly out of the existing uh, financial system, that that would be an important step towards the uploading of dollars to the internet and eventually to have circulation you know, be in these digital currency forms and get kind of the flywheels and utilities, uh, utility value of that. And so just a very different vantage point. Mm. We just sort of have taken for granted that this idea that there is a regulated intersection between the existing international monetary system and, and then these kind of crypto networks. And that's an important piece of infrastructure that people can build on top of. So we've actually got uh, Janet Yellen weighing in on this whole topic at the moment. And I'd, I'd like to call up just a brief segment from her comments here uh, and then get back to you, Jeremy, in response. Sure. I would note that there was a report just this morning um, in the Wall Street Journal that a stable coin known as Te Terra USD um, experienced a run and had declined in value. And um, well, so it, I, I think that simply illustrates that this is a rapidly growing uh, product and um, that there, there are risks to financial stability and we need a framework that's, that's appropriate. The first thing, first thing to note is that the Treasury Secretary, unlike those of us who are glued to Twitter on a 24-hour basis, gets her news from a, from a newspaper in the morning. But, but at the same time, also very important that, you know, Regulators are watching this, right? The government is watching this and they have, uh, they're giving a lot of thought to what the future of digital dollars, of stable coins is going to look like in the future. And Jeremy, you've been involved in many, many discussions with these people. So I suppose my question to you is like, there have been concerns as well that if algorithmic stable coins have one problem, collateralized stable coins have another one. Uh, the risk that, you know, those reserves are not sufficient, there's not enough transparency and, and so forth. G given this attention, what is the base case that Circle is making for USDC and the model you have protected as it pertains to what the regulatory uh, framework will look like going forward? Yeah, so one thing to note is this concept of, are these things regulated? How should they be regulated? I mean, in, in 2018, when we launched USDC, we had been working with banking supervisors throughout the United States and the EU on regulating the intersection of integrating between the existing banking system and digital currency. 
we in fact were one of the most licensed and regulated companies in the world at that time. And we went to the regulators and said, hey, I think there's a way to take the same kind of stored value electronic money transmission rules that we have that apply to things like PayPal or, or Apple Pay or Venmo or, or these kinds of things, but with the novelty of doing this in a digital currency form that works on public blockchains. And so we worked with regulators to get USDC approved, and it is regulated, and the reserves are regulated, what can be in the reserves are regulated, they're audited, there's public reporting on it. And so you know, there's always been this framework. And, and that's actually a big part of why USDC has been so successful is that people actually understand that it is a real fully reserved stablecoin that actually there are controls around. Like, you know, the people who run a business that do this, you know, there's background checks. You can't have been someone who committed fraud. Uh, you have deep, deep investigations into your risk management into your compliance capabilities, into your security operations, into your cybersecurity. You know, there's a lot of pieces that go into doing that. In terms of, you know, the direction of travel, I think our view has been as dollar digital currencies scale and stablecoin scale to global scale as they are and increasingly going to, it probably makes sense to have like a national framework around that. And so whether it's Singapore or the UK or France or Japan or the US, that's happening. There's going to be national policies around stablecoins. In many ways, that is going to represent a, uh, you know, a, effectively a green lighting of this as an infrastructure that mainstream financial applications and commerce can be built on. Corporations will be able to hold these on their balance sheet. They'll be able to take them as a payment medium. People who write financial contracts will be able to incorporate them in. And so there's an, a great unlock that sort of happens with that. You know, I think having national policy is a good idea. Congress is really working on this. What you heard from Janet Yellen was very much, hey, Congress, do your bipartisan job, get something done here. And actually, if you really look and scratch beneath the surface and you look at what's coming out of the House and the Senate, bipartisan, both Democrats and Republicans, it's a pretty reasonable set of policy. It's not forcing stablecoin issuers to be banks. It's not forcing them, limiting their general use on the internet. Um, so it's, it's actually relatively well-thought-out policy coming from both Democrats and Republicans. And we think that's important. Today's episode is sponsored by EY Blockchain. As businesses prepare for the token economy, EY is committed to building a better working world and connecting global business ecosystems on the public Ethereum blockchain. To learn more about the EY Blockchain portfolio of products and services, visit blockchain.ey.com. That's blockchain.ey.com. So, yeah, I mean, you mentioned at the end there this sort of not wanting to be banks. I mean, there is a vocal, whether it's a minority, certainly uh, a number of voices in Washington who are saying that this should be the domain of banks and not non-banks like yourselves. I mean, where does that stand? I mean, you're pretty confident that that's yeah. not going to be imposed? Well, I, I think that there's a lot of novelty in this, and it gets to this whole peg mechanism. It gets to this whole price stability issue, which is, you know, our belief is that full reserve money and full reserve banking represents a more sound financial system. And we believe that something that is fully reserved can actually be a better foundation for the, the conduct of economic activity, the conduct of financial services delivery. Um, banks aren't in that business. Banks are in the business of taking a deposit and having a fractional reserve. And in fact, most of the Algo stablecoin projects today are fractional reserve. Arguably, Tether is fractionally reserved. And 
I'm not a fan of moving back into fractional reserve banking in the realm of stablecoins. I think a full reserve model is an appropriate model. Now, what you don't want to do is say, hey, only companies that take risk and leverage your capital and deposit should be able to do a stablecoin. That would be a huge setback. So our view is that there ought to be some kind of full reserve stablecoin issuing model. Now, that could be regulated by a traditional bank regulator, but is that a bank? What are we talking about here? And so I think what's important is that we can really protect this full reserve money philosophy. You know, there's a sound money philosophy that courses its way through crypto. Uh, and, and, you know, there are some tokens and projects that certainly don't follow a sound money philosophy. And obviously, there are our core assets like Bitcoin and Ether, which I think do. And I think there can be a sound money philosophy around fiat assets as well. It's something that's been advocated by economists for a very long time. Mm. And it's certainly core to the philosophy of USDC. But there's still a, a vocal group of people, Sam, out there who are saying that really, ultimately, we really should be designing something fully decentralized, that you should remove institutions like Circle from this process, because whether we like it or not, those are you know, vulnerable points of failure. Uh, this morning, uh, there was a tweet from Amin Gudsira, the founder of Avalanche, and he kind of, be, I think it was implying in that, that ultimately, you know, USD might come out of this in a solid case because they're experiencing and learning how to actually manage open market operations, uh, which, which speaks to the idea that there should be a hybrid model, that you've got the algorithmic element to this where there is the automated uh, supply adjustments and so forth. But there is also moments where a team of folks who are trained managing these things step in and deal with that. So it was an interesting case. I think people took a lot of issue with it as well. Is there a place for these sorts of things going forward? Do you think we will eventually perfect the algorithmic model going forward? Or is it just doomed to be vulnerable to these systemic risks? Look, my gut opinion is that we're not there yet. Maybe Terra is going to get back to a dollar. Maybe it's going to be some other token. But we're really not there yet. We have not figured out how to create these algorithmic or these decentralized stable coins. But that tweet that you pulled up there, in my mind, speaks to a fundamental irony with Terra, which is that Terra praises itself or positions itself as the epitome of a decentralized stablecoin. Decentralized being a keyword, not just algorithmic. And the fact that they need to have this central team controlling things. I mentioned before how they've got Bitcoin being deployed, billions of dollars worth onto markets, maybe even leading to that 10% drop in Bitcoin's price yesterday because of the sell pressure that it added. Anyway, because they have this central team of a handful of people who are actually basically performing the role of a treasury or some sort of like a regulatory authority, I don't know. Because they have that, their boosters say that they have an advantage relative to completely decentralized tokens that don't have that central team. But again, they're a decentralized token and they have a central team. It's, you know, the US dollar is backed up by guns, by armies. And it almost feels when I see tweets like the one that you just pulled up, and this is my opinion, but it almost feels like they're basically saying that you need those same sorts of mechanisms to back up these decentralized algorithmic stable coins, which in my mind just doesn't really mesh. And in a lot of people's minds, if you, mm. you know, decide you're, you're in the mood to read Twitter, today or yesterday. Um, <laughs> Twitter's certainly been People alive me, with it. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's funny. I, I, I yeah. couldn't help but think of like the, the famous stories of the turn of the century when JP Morgan was in, you know, wherever there was a bank run or some sort of crisis in the markets, you'd have these bit larger than life characters who'd step in and, and bail it out. There was no Federal Reserve. There was nothing. 
And there's always this conflict of interest there, right? You've got money, you can trade this stuff to your advantage, and that's one of the big problems with this. You know, Jeremy, just maybe because I know you've got short time here, just a a last word from you on that in, in particular. What do you say to those who would say that you guys are, are there and you, you're open to that manipulation that sort of at some point a government or so-and-so can shut you down, not, not necessarily that you're regulated, but simply because they can go after you in a way that a fully decentralized system wouldn't have that risk? Well, I mean, what does that mean to go after us? I think the, the reality is that there are enormous numbers of statutes that protect the users of money that protect the products and services that make financial infrastructure available. Governments don't just go and seize control and and direct traffic, so to speak. There is an inherent kind of view that anything that has interaction with national governments is problematic. I just take a huge issue with that. We're trying to build open financial infrastructure that is broadly available, that households, firms, businesses, organizations, individuals around the world can utilize. And I think an intersection layer between the regulated financial system and the public internet is going to be a really key piece of that. And so I think we're just trying to build that. I think you know we are fierce defenders of open public blockchains, fierce defenders of digital bearer assets, fierce defenders of the ability to have programmable money on these public infrastructures, and actually trying to build something that is more safe and more sound and more secure than the existing banking system. And so I think if you really look closely, what projects like ours are trying to do is design something that is, is certainly better than what we've had. We are very much defenders of a lot of the kind of core beliefs that are there. Now, I think we, we are living in a world where we, we believe that having regulated intermediaries between central bank money and the public internet makes some sense. And I think that will be the case probably for another 10, maybe 20 years until we can really see synthetic global stable coins work at scale for society at large. Good stuff. All right, Jeremy, thank you so much. I'm going to let you go. And Sam, if you can stick around. Thank Jeremy, you. I am looking forward to continuing this conversation with you at Consensus in June, but it's always a pleasure Absolutely. having you on the show. All right. All the best. Thanks so much. Yeah. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. All right, Sam, one of the things that's just I've been thinking about is like, what does all this mean for DeFi writ large? If you think like same thing with DAI, right? Another algo stable coin, which was sort of like an integral part of the way that MakerDAO works and also the role that actually reserve-backed stable coins like USDC and others play in the DeFi universe. Uh, the challenges broadly to these stable coins, what does it mean for the capacity to build all those other functionalities within the DeFi universe, the, you know, lending out uh, protocols and, and everything else? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I think the Terra case study is going to have ripple effects in a few key ways. One thing you referenced, I, I mean, you pulled up that Janet Yellen clip, whether or not Terra is emblematic of the entire DeFi industry or the entire stablecoin industry, this will invite scrutiny to DeFi. Whether you think that's a good thing or not depends on who you ask, but you cannot possibly blame them for it scrutinizing DeFi after seeing something that's been referred by many to by many as like a confidence game or a Ponzi scheme. Whether that's fair or not, I don't know. But again, you know, there's going to be regulatory scrutiny. This also calls into question a model that we've seen a lot in crypto, which is this idea of like taking money, putting it in a black box and expecting returns. And oftentimes those returns come from VCs, big firms in this case, like Jump Crypto or Three Hour Capital, or coming from printing new money. If you look up Olympus, that's an interesting case study on this as well. But basically, 
Terra did that with its anchor vault, where they were offering these unsustainable 20% yields. They said, okay, if there's not an application yet for our stablecoin, we're just going to create this application by inviting you to lock it up and we'll pay you in exchange. And that just gets people to hold and not sell their tokens. That model ultimately has a finite amount of runway, as we've seen several times historically, or if you can call it history in this short world of DeFi. But anyway, it calls that into question. And then finally, this is an, maybe an indictment of this whole algorithmic stablecoin idea. I'm not quite sure yet. I think there's a lot of other ways we might be able to do this. This model is actually quite simple, but it shows that just kind of like trying to, it's one thing to use memes to make something some floating price. It's another thing to use memes to point at some sort of like a hand-waving mechanism and say, this thing should be worth exactly a dollar. When you're playing around with something like that, you're playing with fire because you're saying this thing is something that if it's one cent off in either direction, it is not what you say it is. And in this case, that happened. And these stable coins, which underpin the entire DeFi ecosystem, they're incredibly important. And if we can't do that decentrally, that's a word, we have problems. <laughs> it is now because the whole vision is decentralization. Yeah. So a couple of things as well that I'm thinking about here. One is that there's this sort of, this need for decentralization comes with it. Also a, a core piece of crypto kind of ethos, if you like, and that is anonymity or at least pseudonymity. And that it's all very well to say, okay, there are these characters that can step in and manage the float and so forth. But when you don't know who the figure is behind it, the first movers and others with it who are in a position of influence are incredibly empowered in ways that they aren't in a more kind of transparent system to actually manipulate things. So I wonder whether, you know, any of this starts to bring that into question. You asked a little bit earlier, like whether there's a place for this, and I kind of just talked about Terra specifically, but there's obviously a place for decentralized money. And just because it hasn't worked yet, or it might not be working in the Terra case, doesn't mean that there are plenty of good reasons users, investors might want to have an actually dependable, decentralized algorithmic store of value. Uh, Jeremy kind of alluded to this, but maybe your viewers are familiar with Tether. Like one of the problems that we have with existing collateralized stablecoins, even USDC to a certain extent, is that we don't have 100% transparency into their reserves. You have to either depend on them or depend on audits, which in the case of Tether, we have not seen, to actually know whether it's fully backed or like Jeremy said about Tether, it's partially backed. So there's a trust game going on here. Just the, the issue with an algorithmic you know, model is that there is still a trust game. You're not trusting that they've got money in the bank, but you're trusting this mechanism and you're trusting centralized parties, in this case, Doquan, to say, hey, my mechanism works. We're going to deploy Bitcoin in such and such a way, yada, yada, yada. So there's a reason why this stuff exists. Maybe, you know, we're going to continue to see variations on it. And I don't know, it would yeah. be very interesting to follow. But, you know, it is, but one other sort of line that's often placed in favor of DeFi is that it truly is kind of caveat emptor, right? It's, you know, there isn't the moral hazard of the too big to fail model, at least within the construct of a government backed system. Now, maybe, you know, UST is looking too big to fail and the quote unquote government of, uh, of crypto, if, if CZ from Binance could be included in that, or at least the JP Morgan illusion that I made before, you know, they step in and manage it. But, but, but the reality is, look, it's, you don't get bailed out. You, you play a risk and therefore like there is a 20% yield on your, on your anchor investment then you damn well should be, should be ready for it to collapse because, you know, 20% may be too big to be true. But on the other hand, you're taking that risk, right? And there's this idea that 
once you remove and you, you put everybody into that, like, go ahead, take your risks. We're not going to bail you out. Then it's fine. You can use these higher yields to entice activity, bring liquidity in and build the ecosystem around that with all full knowledge that these first movers may well lose money. And that out of that, we learn things, we develop things, and eventually it gets to a sort of more stable environment. Um, I don't know whether something like money, as important as it is, should be subject to that level of volatility, but it is an interesting way to think about it. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I definitely have some thoughts on it. And I think this is something that you heard about a lot when Tether was being called into question sometime last year, when, like I said, we weren't sure if it was fully backed. The thing is, Tether and USDC right now form the foundation of all of decentralized finance. That's billions of dollars. And in the long term, probably going to be trillions of dollars if things, well, you know, it's been a tough couple of days, but if things continue at the broader pace that they seem to be moving at. So in a world where USDC and Tether move to the wayside and something like a Terra comes in, which is kind of built on faith that it's going to be pegged to this dollar and then sits at the foundation of these billions upon billions of dollar, you know, systems, once that thing stops working, you know, we'll see whether it really is too big to fail. So it sometimes felt with Terra, to put it another way, like they were trying to just like, um, and this is like my opinion, but it did feel like they were kind of just like throwing things, throwing like ideas. Hey, we're going to have this Bitcoin reserve. We're going to have this burn mechanism. We're going to upgrade the chain in this way. And it almost felt like they were throwing shiny objects at us, you know, in partnership with their backer, with their investors to be like, hey, we have all these people supporting us. We have these sophisticated mechanisms to keep things at a dollar. And people who either don't dig in that much or see that these are the ninth and 10th largest tokens by market cap on all of the exchanges, those being UST and Luna being those tokens, people see that the thing does get so big because we have all these shiny objects to latch onto. That's when you get this systemic risk. I don't know if it should be incumbent on investors to figure that out for themselves. Uh, look, like it's fascinating stuff. And I, I will tell you this, Sam, you have a great beat. This is, <laughs> is going to keep being something very, very interesting and very, yeah. very important, by the way. Once you get Janet Yellen weighing in and conversations around systemic risk, we're talking about the design of the financial system of the future and what is in it for everybody. So thanks so much for joining us today. And uh, in retrospect, thanks for, for Jeremy as well. Thank you to all of you for once again being with us on Money Reimagined. Come back next week for another edition. Bye for now. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show featured Michael J. Casey and guests Jeremy Allaire and Sam Kessler. This episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau with announcements by Adam B. Levine. Our theme song is Shepherd. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined. Leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.